Once upon a time, there was a little girl who lived in a village near the forest. Whenever she went out, the little girl wore a red riding cloak. So everyone in the village called her Little Red Riding Hood. So begins one of the most famous fairy tales, the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Every fairy tale has a meaning behind it. Most fairy tales were told to scare the pants off their children. Little Red Riding Hood is no different. The moral of Little Red Riding Hood is not to talk to strangers. Because if you do talk to strangers, your grandmother might get eaten by a wolf. And you might get eaten by a wolf as well. Now, if you were a little girl and you heard this story, what would you do? I would not talk to strangers. Bad things happen when you talk to strangers. When you first hear the story of Jesus and Christmas in the Gospel of Matthew, it doesn't sound very much like a fairy tale. Instead, the story sounds really, really boring. After all, the story of Jesus begins with a list of names. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus' ancestors. Now, it's easy to want to skip over this genealogy and to get to the stars, to the manger, to get to the shepherds. Now, that story sounds more like a fairy tale. That story of Jesus is a story of someone from a different world who breaks into our world in Bethlehem, and we will discover later on in Matthew, has miraculous powers. The story of Jesus and Christmas sounds like a whole lot like our Superman fairy tale in that sense. Except that Christmas is not a fairy tale. Matthew begins the story of Jesus by placing Jesus in history. Jesus is the descendant of real, live, flesh-and-blood human beings. The story of Jesus is not some made-up, once-upon-a-time story. Instead, it's a true story with real people. But just because the story of Jesus is a true story, that does not mean that there is no meaning behind the story of Christmas. Christmas has a message behind it. Sometimes we lose the meaning of the story in the rush of Christmas activities. So I'd like for us in this Christmas season to rediscover the meaning of Christmas. Let's begin by examining the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 to see what the message of Christmas is. First of all, we see that the message of Christmas is that the gospel is good news not good advice. As we have seen and heard this morning from Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins the story of Christmas with a list of names. He lists many of the ancestors of Jesus. Now why would Matthew start the Christmas story in this way? He is grounding the person of Jesus in history. He is saying that Jesus is real. Jesus is not some fairy tale. If Matthew wanted to say that the story of Jesus was a fairy tale, he would have begun the story with, once upon a time. But Matthew does not begin the story that way. Instead, he says, here is a list of names of the ancestors of Jesus. 
And many of these ancestors of Jesus were pretty famous to the Jewish people. And so Matthew begins the Christmas story by saying, Jesus is real. He is just as real as these people that you know from history. Have any of you ever done a study of your ancestors? Have you ever looked into your ancestry at all? Have you done that? Good. My father did such a study on his own ancestors. He learned about the life of his grandfather, who had emigrated from Sweden and moved to Chicago. He learned about how his grandfather started a business in Chicago, and about how his grandfather even ran for Congress. But my father was not just content to learn about his grandfather. He also wanted to learn about his ancestors that were even before his grandfather. He wanted to learn about those people, and so he took a trip to Sweden, where my grandfather was from. He went to the church that my grandfather attended as a little boy and a young man. He saw the baptismal registry of that church which contained not only the name of my grandfather and the date that he was baptized, it also contained the names of several other of our ancestors. And by walking around the community of that particular church, my dad got a picture of what life might have been like for his ancestors. He got to know our ancestors as real, live, flesh-and-blood this is what Matthew is doing as he begins the story of Jesus and Christmas. He is reminding us that Jesus is a real historical person. Here is why this is important. If Matthew had begun the story of Jesus with once upon a time, then he would have ended the fairy tale with a moral or with some good advice. The end of Little Red Riding Hood tells us, don't talk to strangers, or else you will be eaten by a wolf. And if the end of the story of Jesus were presented by Matthew as a fairy tale, it would also end with a moral to the story. The end of the story of Jesus would have been something like this. Now here's what you need to do. If you want to get on God's good side, follow Jesus' example. Do what Jesus did, then you can save yourselves. That's not how Matthew's story ends. Matthew's story ends with gospel, which means good news. And the gospel tells you not what you should do, but what God has done. The gospel tells you that Jesus entered into the world in order to ultimately die on the cross to save you from your sin. You don't need to do anything to save yourself. You just need to believe what God has done for you at the cross. This, then, is good news, not good advice. A summary of the gospel message is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Let us read those verses together out loud. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. At just the right time, after many ancestors of Jesus had been born into this world and died, God sent Jesus to earth to be born of Mary, who is named in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16. God sent Jesus to be born of Mary at Christmas. Why? Why was Jesus sent to earth by God to be born of Mary? Because we needed to be saved. We needed to be redeemed or set free from our sin and its penalty of death. And when we are saved, we are adopted into God's very own family. We are part of that family forever. The important question then is this. Have you believed the good news? Have you believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? The story of Christmas is a story about real events that happened in history. It's a story about what God has done to save you through Jesus' death on the cross for you. You cannot save yourself. You can only be saved by what God has done for you. The story of Christmas, then, is not good advice that you need to follow. The story of Christmas is good news to believe. The message of Christmas is also that the gospel turns the world's values upside down. When you read the list of names in Matthew chapter 1, most of the names have something in common. They are the names of men. That makes sense. Israel was a patriarchal society. And so people trace their descent through their fathers. And so you read the list of the ancestral fathers of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But it's interesting to me that it is not just the fathers of Jesus who are listed here. Five of the ancestral mothers of Jesus are also named here in this genealogy in Matthew 1. Matthew honors these mothers by including them in the list of the genealogy of Jesus. These mothers had value to God also. It was not just the fathers who were valuable to God. These women may have been outsiders within a patriarchal society, but they were not outsiders to God. They were valuable to God as well. And so who were some of these mothers to Jesus? The first mother mentioned is Tamar in verse 3. Tamar was a Canaanite. She was a Gentile. And Tamar was also immoral. She tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into an incestuous relationship. Judah and Tamar's children are some of the ancestors of Jesus our Savior. The second woman mentioned in this ancestry is Rahab in verse 5. Rahab was also an immoral woman. She was a prostitute from Jericho. 
whose child also made it onto the list of Jesus' ancestors. The third woman in the genealogy mentioned is Ruth. Fortunately, there is no hint that Ruth was an immoral woman. But Ruth was another Gentile, so that all three women mentioned in the genealogy so far, they are all non-Jews. They are all Gentiles. Since Ruth was from the people of Moab, she would have been considered unclean by the Jewish people. She would not have been allowed to go into the tabernacle where God was worshipped. And yet Ruth's son is one of the ancestors of Jesus. Then the fourth woman mentioned in the genealogy was, you guessed it, also involved in an immoral relationship. We do not get the woman's name in verse 6. All we see in verse 6 is that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David had an adulterous relationship with Uriah's wife. We know from 2 Samuel that this wife's name was Bathsheba, and her son Solomon was also one of the ancestors of Jesus. Finally, in verse 16, we see the, the last woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, Mary. We read in that verse that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I think that you would agree with me that this is one strange genealogy. There were a lot of people in Jesus' ancestry, and yet Matthew took the time to list some people who had some very shady backgrounds. In this list, Matthew deliberately recalls for his readers some of the most sordid, nasty, and immoral stories in all of the Old Testament. When you hear about these stories of Jesus' ancestors and mothers, you say to yourself, that is one crazy family. Jesus sure came from a totally dysfunctional family. And you know what? You are absolutely right. It was out of a dysfunctional family that Jesus, our Messiah, was born. Jesus came to save us from a dysfunctional family. And that dysfunctional family is called the human race. Jesus' genealogy, then, is shocking in what it presents. One thing that makes Jesus' genealogy so shocking is that a genealogy functioned as a resume in Jesus' day. In his day, it was your ancestry, it was your family that made up your resume. Your genealogy said to the world, this is who I am. This is why you should respect me. Now, when you have some blots on your resume, what do you do with those stains? You scrub them out, don't you? You don't keep them on your resume. You get rid of those things. Instead, you want to present a pure resume to the people who might hire you today. 
You don't say on your resume, well, I got fired from that job because I was incompetent. Or I lost that job because I sort of kind of took some money from the company that I shouldn't have. And I was shown the door at that job because I had an inappropriate relationship with a co-worker. You would never put that on your resume. You'll get rid of all that. But Matthew does not do that with Jesus' resume. Matthew includes all of the stains, all of the blots. And Matthew also includes all of the outsiders on Jesus' resume. He includes the outsiders on Jesus' resume, who are women. He includes the outsiders, who are Gentiles. He includes the outsiders, who are totally immoral. All of these people would have been excluded from the presence of God in the tabernacle or the temple. So why, then, do their names get included on Jesus' resume? I think that Matthew is trying to tell each one of us today that God's values are very different from our values. God is saying to us today through Jesus' resume, it does not matter to me if you are a man or a woman. It does not matter to me who your family is. It does not matter to me what you have done it doesn't even matter to me if you have killed someone or committed adultery like David did. If you repent of your sin and believe that Jesus died on the cross for that sin, the grace and mercy of Jesus can forgive you and bring you into God's family. That is what God values. Some of the more interesting stories in the gospel talk about how Jesus dealt with lepers. Lepers were people who had an infectious skin disease. And so you did not want to get near a leper. Lepers were considered unclean by the Jews. And so if you were a holy person like Jesus, you had to avoid contact with unholy lepers. You had to keep social distance from a leper. We are learning about keeping socially distant today because of the contagious coronavirus. Everybody kept socially distant from lepers in Jesus' day. Their unholiness was thought to be contagious. It was thought to spring from them to you if you touched them. But when lepers came to Jesus in the Bible, when they approached Jesus, did Jesus stay separate from them? Did Jesus say to them, get away from me! I don't want to lose my holiness by coming into contact with you. Step back. Go away. Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus' holiness could not be contaminated by contact with the lepers. 
Instead, what happened was this. Jesus holiness infected the lepers because he touched them. Isn't that amazing? Don't we have a great Savior? You can come to him no matter how infectious you are, no matter how unclean you are. And Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says that your sins will become as white as snow. God, then, does not just value the so-called good people of the world. God is not ashamed of those who know that they have committed great sins. And so instead, God offers his salvation to all people, including the most despised people and the outcasts of society. And we become members of God's family, not by any good works that we do. We become members of God's family simply by receiving a gift of grace. It is only what Jesus has done for you on the cross that can make you right with God. If you believe that Christ died for you, then God will value you as a member of his own family. All of us were equally sinful, equally lost, we are all part of the dysfunctional human family. But because of Jesus, we in the church are all equally accepted and equally loved by God. In the church, then, it is not our family history. It is not our good works that are valuable to God. What is truly valuable is the mercy of God. It is God's grace that is the true treasure. That is the message of Christmas. And the message of Christmas is also this. God may take his time, but he keeps his word. When we read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, one thing becomes clear. The promise of the Messiah coming took years and generations to be fulfilled. Listen again as I read Matthew 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promise that God would send a Messiah or a Christ began with Abraham. Jesus will be the fulfillment of all of the hopes and the promises and the prophecies of Israel. But do you know how many years Abraham lived before Jesus came? I brought a picture with me this morning to show you a, a timeline of how long it was before Jesus came after Abraham. You see, Abraham was 2,000 years before Jesus. Then we get to Moses, 1,500 years before Jesus. Then David, 1,000 years before Jesus. So ultimately, it took 2,000 years after the promise to Abraham before the Messiah would come. 
God had promised Abraham something in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. Let's read that promise together as a church. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All families on earth, Jews and Gentiles, would be blessed through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, who would come through the line of King David. So even Gentiles like Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab, and us, would know the blessing of being a part of God's family through Jesus. But it would take 2,000 years before God's promise of a Messiah would be kept. It would be 20 centuries, two millennia, before the angel would come to Mary and say, it was time for God to keep his promise to send a Messiah. 2,000 years is a long time. It looked like God had forgotten his promise to the Jews and to us. It looked like no one was coming to save us. But then the Messiah, Jesus, came. I want to remind you this morning that you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow to us, but God never forgets his promises. Never. One of the most challenging times for my wife Wendy and me was in believing that God would keep his promise to provide for our needs as we thought about getting our sons to college. It looked to me like God had answered our prayer by giving to Wendy a scholarship to, through the hospital there she worked at, to become an x-ray technician and to go to school for that degree, so that she would be able to find a job in that field and help us to provide for our children. When he, Wendy finished that program in two years, but we were surprised that there were no x-ray tech jobs available after she graduated. This was extremely disappointing for us. Had God forgotten us? Would God keep his promise to provide for our needs and for our son's education? I'm here to say that God did keep his promise, but not on our timetable and not in the way that we thought he would keep his promise. After a few long years of waiting, God used Wendy's prior education degree to get a training job at the hospital. She got a promotion then, which God used to provide for us. And after years in that position, God opened a door for Wendy to become an administrator at a doctor's practice, another promotion that God had provided. Through these jobs, then, God provided a way for us to pay for our son's education. And next month, I will write the final check that I will send to a college for my children's education. And so, if you hear an earthquake coming from Farmingdale next month, 
That's just me doing the dance of joy as I write that last track. Part of my joy is in knowing that God kept his promise to provide. Both of my sons will graduated from college without any loans. They will graduate debt-free. God keeps his promises. Some of you here today are having doubts about God. You doubt that he loves you. You doubt that he keeps his promises. But you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may be slow in your judgment, but God never forgets his promises. Never. Just because God is not following your agenda or doing what you are telling him to do, that does not mean that God does not love you. The truth is that if you want to impose your time frame or your agenda on God, you will never feel loved by God. But God does love you. God does keep his promises. It's just that God keeps those promises in ways that you cannot imagine before it happens. And so as you head into this Christmas season, don't forget the meaning of Christmas. God always keeps his promises. Always. God may take longer than you think he should. He may do different do things differently than you think he should. But God will always keep his promises in often amazing and surprising ways. That is the meaning of Christmas. God keeps his word. He kept his word to send a Messiah to earth to save us from our sins. He kept his word over 2,000 years of waiting. And by believing in Jesus, we receive the good news of salvation. And by believing in Jesus, we receive God's amazing grace for sinners like me and sinners like you. Now even sinners can be part of the family of God. What unimaginable good news we find in the message of Christmas. Let's pray together. God, how grateful we are today to celebrate this message of good news in Christmas. Thank you that you did not send Jesus to give us good advice. Thank you instead you sent Jesus to bring us good news. Good news of a Savior who came to die on the cross in our place to bring us forgiveness. Thank you as well, O oh Lord, for your message of grace at Christmas. How we need your grace how we need to know that we are forgiven. And thank you as well that in the story of Christmas, we find the truth that you always keep your word. You always keep your promises. Encourage your people today. Help them to know that you will keep those promises that they are clinging to desperately. Help them to know that you will do what you say you will do. Amen.